Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm the parish pastor here on the east side. It is good to be with you um, this morning. We're going to be reading today from the book of Genesis, the very end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, reading verses 15 to 22, and then after reading, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into um, our teaching for the day. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? And so they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong that they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. So Joseph went, wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also wept, and they fell down before him and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. And in this way he reassured them, kindly speaking to them. And so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father, his father's household. And Joseph lived for 110 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we um, thank you for this text. We thank you for the Bible and for the way that it is always inviting us into more. And now for this very old story of this very old family that comes to us today in the midst of so much uncertainty and chaos. Lord, we ask that we would hear from you, Holy Spirit, and, and receive from you what you have for us today, that we, would, um, that we would take it in to our bodies and to our hearts and to our bones. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, this Friday, I... Uh, along with a number of you, had the privilege of participating in what was called the March on Atlanta. It was a 10,000-person strong um, mixed-race march through Atlanta city streets for racial justice. And several times during it, we, uh, the people who were there, uh, because it was put on by local churches, we got on our knees at places all over the city, and we confessed our sins, and we lamented our silence. And I think one of the things I was expecting this this march to be good. I knew it would be good. And I, I, I figured that it would probably be a, a good thing to take my kids to. But I, had, I really wasn't prepared for how meaningful and how moving it was going to be to touch really deep places within me. Because as we lamented our silence as the church, realizing that there have been centuries and centuries of needless violence and oppression, if the church had just been the church at any point before today, if we had just woken up before today, how many lives could have been uh, spared. Many times as we were marching through the city streets, 10,000 strong, we would come up on intersections and we would block whole intersections for several minutes at a time. And whereas I might anticipate the people who are stuck at those intersections, watching thousands of people walk by, they might be frustrated or angry or you know, honk their horns or yell. Instead, what happened again and again at every intersection uh, was people, I, I noticed drivers, particularly um, black men and women who were driving buses and cars and trucks, roll their windows down and put one hand out in the air with a fist in solidarity with those 
who marched by. And for some reason, as this was happening, this was very meaningful to me. Um, I was thinking about what's going on. Like, why is this touching such a deep place in me? What, what's going on here? And I'll just say, like, as an aside, like, you always follow your tears because they'll take you somewhere. Your tears are usually indicators that something is going on under the surface that, that can be released, that God wants to release into the world that's a part of your deeper heart. And, and so I was just thinking about this as I was walking. And, and I think what, um, what struck me, especially these moments of, of solidarity, not just with those of us who are marching, but with the city as a whole, the whole city coming together with one voice, was this idea that like I, um, it felt like I was like so glad to finally be here, like glad to finally be where I feel like I should have been all along. And one of the things that's been hard in the season is to reckon with how long I've remained quiet and silent because it was so much easier and how selfish that's been. And I have remained, about many critical issues in our world, I've remained uh, significantly ignorant and, or even worse, informed and still silent because I wanted to be nuanced and I wanted to be persuasive and I wanted to be agreeable to all and not cut off conversations and make it so that we could keep talking because I thought if we could keep talking that was better than saying what needed to be said or what was true. And, and, and so finding myself in this moment now where I'm like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where we're supposed to be. And to have my kids, my little, my girls experiencing that alongside me thinking about like at such a young age, these are going to be their memories. This is, this is populating their memory bank with what it means to be human, with what it means to be a part of the church. I just felt very in the center of like, oh, this is where, I've, this is where I should have been all along. And there's like a grief in that and there's a joy in that. It's like this weird mix of, of things going on. There's a lot of sorrow though. But I believe, I believe in those moments that God was saying essentially like, you're in the right place. Like, you don't have to go back. You don't have to go back. We can stay here now. We can keep moving forward. I believe that God is actually doing something seismic in our world and nation right now. Not just on the individual level, although he is, but, but nationally and globally. We are living currently, you and me, at the intersection of two historic moments, like world events, the global pandemic and a national reckoning with our history. Those two things are happening simultaneously right now which is why people are protesting with masks on. And in the middle of that intersection, we are here at Trinity deciding to spend this season focusing on emotional health, which might raise the question, why? Why emotional health now? And the reason is, is because if you've been here for more than five minutes, you've heard us talk about Dr. Edwin Friedman's book, A Failure of Nerve. And in Friedman's book, he rightly diagnoses that we live in a society, and not just America, but a global society, in which we are not run by rationale and by logic, but by emotions. We live in an emotional system. It's emotion that is actually driving and dictating most of what is going on around us. And he diagnoses that the water that we're swimming in, the emotional water we find ourselves uh, in today is chronic anxiety, which is why the news media works the way it does, which is why your social media works the way it does, and which is why we find it so hard as a people to agree on virtually anything. I mean, today you could probably, all of you who are watching this, could, could think of a person in your immediate family even, a person who has a very similar life experience to you, a person who has much of the same DNA as you, whose life experience maps very neatly onto yours, and yet if you wanted to, and I'm not suggesting you do, you could get in an argument today with that person about whether or not Rayshard Brooks should have been shot or whether or not we should be forced to wear masks in public. And the reason that you could get into a fight about that is not because of our significant, robust, logical wiring. It's because of our emotional wiring. 
And so when we talk about emotional health, we are not simply talking about a component of human health. We're talking about, in, in a sense, the whole of it. We're talking about what does it mean to be human beings? How do we do, how do, we do this human thing well? And today the story of Joseph uh, is, is used uh, to teach us this, this idea, this, this next principle in emotional health, which is that we have to be willing to go back to go forward. But Pete calls this chapter, we have to go back to go forward, which is just this idea that oftentimes progress will only come if we're first willing to look backwards. And this is not comfortable for us. Most of us would like to avoid looking back. And there are usually reasons why we don't look back or why we only are willing to look back at certain things or only through a certain lens. But in the story of Joseph, we, we kind of jump in at the very tail end of this very long story. The, the biblical saga of Joseph covers a, a whole quarter of the book of Genesis in your Bible. And we, we have, the only people in the Bible that we really have more biographical data about than Joseph is like the prophet Moses, King David, and Jesus Christ. So he's in pretty rare air as far as why this person, his story is in the Bible. And Joseph serves as a hinge point between um, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Moses and Egypt and the Exodus and the story that will continue to guide and govern Israel's history and the church's history going forward. And so he's this really significant hinge point, which may be why he gets so much airtime. And yet, and yet underneath that, what's going on in the story of Joseph is the principle that we see today that Joseph is a person who in many ways broke from his inheritance. He broke from his family of origins way of living and doing how things had always been. Because believe it or not, the Bible does not in any way cast Joseph's family, his great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, or his father Jacob in a favorable light. These three men, the patriarchs, whom God constantly refers to himself by, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these three patriarchs are in no way cast in a favorable light. In fact, Pete just points out a couple of things that are a part of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that Joseph inherits, and I have these on the screen for you. One is a pattern of lying and deception in every generation. Every generation, big lies are told. They all have a problem with the truth, the whole family. Second, favoritism shown by a parent in each generation, which creates the third problem. Brothers who experience a division cut off from one another in every generation. So there's favoritism, and this favoritism creates division in every, in every generation. And then finally, marriage, one poor marriage after another. And there's examples after examples that Pete gives of, of things that were wrong with in, broken in Isaac and Rebecca's relationship and Abraham and Sarah's relationship and Jacob and Leah and Rachel and his two concubines' relationships and broken marriages. This is what Joseph inherits. And, and so, so what, right? So what? Well, this is the point. Joseph, at the place where we drop in on this text, which is the, the last scene of a three-hour movie, we see that Joseph has an option in this moment, and it is to continue what he has been given, to continue to use power to harm and to exploit, to continue to be deceptive, to continue to shun intimacy, to show favoritism. He has an option to do these things. And instead of doing these things, Joseph chooses something differently. And that choice was not a decision that was made like in the moment. It was forged in the fires of a long life of suffering that Joseph experienced. He experienced it being unjustly imprisoned for, imprisoned for years in Egypt and treated as a servant and sold into slavery and all sorts of things. And in the fires of that suffering, Joseph became a different kind of person. And I don't know what Joseph thought about all those long hours he spent in Egyptian dungeons, but I, I wonder if he began to replay family stories and think about them in a different way. 
since the reason that he was in chains in that moment was because his own flesh and blood had sold him out to slave traders. Joseph had a choice, and he chose to do something um, different. And that is, that's what this is about. That's what going back to go forward is about, is us coming to grips with what has been given to us, what we've inherited, so that we can do something different. Um, philosopher, the philosopher uh, George Santania famously said, those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. So whatever it is that led Joseph to tell the truth, to open himself to friendship with his betrayers, to turn around generations of deceit and favoritism and dysfunction, the question for you and me is, are we willing to similarly go back and look at the things that we have inherited? To be willing to look under the hood or metaphorically to go through the family photo albums to see what we may be unknowingly carrying into even our relationships today. Pete says in this chapter in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says, sadly, when we look beneath the surface of our lives, most of us are not doing fundamentally different from what our families did. That's one of the hard things about genogramming is you'll discover that you're not actually that different. And then he says, and I have this, we have this quote on the screen, our fear of bringing secrets into the light, however, drives many people to prefer illusion so that they do not have to think about it, and then it somehow goes away. Our fear of bringing secrets and sin into the light, however, drives many people to prefer illusion, because then we don't have to think about it, and we think it'll somehow go away. And just think about that quote for a second. Just leave it up there, if you will, Beth. Like, think about that both personally for you and me, like what that means to, like, prefer illusion, and then think about it nationally for us in this moment. Think about what it means for us to prefer the illusion nationally about our history and about our origin. This is the work that going back to go forward is inviting us into. And I actually don't think, I think that that principle maps cleanly applies to both of those things, both personal discipleship and then our national discipleship. What we're, what we're learning as a church and how we're growing and progressing as a church. And I don't think one actually shortcuts the other. I think actually they deeply inform uh, one another. That's the work that's before us right now. Going back to go forward is not going back to burn down the house. Going back to go forward is not going back to destroy your, your ties with your family. It is not historic revisionism so that you can create division. It's going back with hindsight and the attempt to have objectivity to see things differently, to see things as they really were so that we can move towards growth. Most of us have a tendency to wear rose-colored glasses when we look at our own history. We can almost always think of people who had it worse than us. And that, amount of th that kind of thinking is what keeps us from just looking at what was true. What are the things that were broken that are still shaping and guiding me today? It's not us going back and burning family photo albums. We're not trying to actually build walls. We're trying to figure out what health looks like. But before we can understand health, we have to diagnose what's wrong. We have to diagnose illness within ourselves. Until we understand how we got to where we are, we will never know what we need to do to move forward. And so that's the work before us, and one of the things that we're going to be uh, inviting you into, in fact, you can find this on our website, is we're, the West Side is hosting a workshop on genogramming, which is figuring out how to map your family history going back three generations so you have a sense of some of the things that have actually traced down to you today. And this is hard work, but it is so valuable and don't think that you won't discover things about yourself that are, that are significant as far as God reparenting you into a different kind of person. 
It has, I've done it for years, and I'm going to do it again, did it years ago. And it is significant in what God shows to us when we're willing to look back so that we can go forward. But similarly, you and I in this moment have the decision before us to be willing to look back his, historically and nationally to how we got to where we are today. We have to be willing to go back and be informed by a history that is, that is informed by the experiences of powerless and oppressed people, as opposed to the history that you and I were taught, which was informed by the powerful and the oppressor. Uh, a person in our church this week sent me a podcast, uh, a conversation with a, a Roman Catholic priest, uh, Father Brian um, Massingale, Massingale, and he wrote the book Racial Justice in the Catholic Church. Anyway, Massingale's uh, discussion was mostly about an article that had recently uh, been released in the National Catholic Reporter, which I will uh, get to you this week, probably on Wednesday. We'll send out a bunch of resources, and this will be in that list. But the article was called The Assumptions of White Privilege and What We Can Do About It, and I thought it was important enough I want to share with you for a minute some of the things that he points out. He said that as he was thinking about the moments that we're living in right now, he realized that what's going on is that nobody has a problem acknowledging that George Floyd's death was atrocious and vicious and never should have happened. Nobody should put their knee on the back of someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. It's never okay. It's terrible abuse of power, and it's, it's wicked and wrong. But he says the thing is, is like, it's more subtle than that. We all, can, we all can stand in solidarity around that, but it's more subtle than that, and that's why there's a problem. And what he said is, as I was thinking about it, I realized that on the same day that the George Floyd murder happened, there was another event that was momentarily a viral sensation that ended up getting buried in the far more significant and tragic story out of Minneapolis. But that story, the previous story, came out of New York City where a woman named Amy Cooper was walking her dog without a leash in Central Park and a person of color, Christian Cooper, of no relation to Amy Cooper, was birdwatching in the same park. And he was letting Amy know that she needed to put her dog on a leash. It was the rules of the park. And also her dog was scaring away the birds. And she freaked out and threatened to call the cops and said if he came near to her, she was going to call and say an African-American male is threatening me, which isn't true at all. It's not true. But this is what Massingale says. He goes, this is why this moment is so important. It cracks the thing open. He says, Amy Cooper assumed that her lies would be more credible than his truth. She assumed that she would have the presumption of innocence. She assumed that he, the black man, would have the presumption of guilt. She assumed that the police would back her up. She assumed that her race would be to her advantage and his race to his disadvantage. She assumed that the world should work for her and against him. She assumed that she had the upper hand in the situation. She assumed that she could exploit deeply ingrained white fears of black men. She assumed that she could use deeply ingrained white fears to keep the black man in his place. She assumed that any confrontation with the police would not go well for him. She assumed that Christian Cooper could and would understand all of this. And he did, which is why he rightly picked up his phone and began to record the incident. And then Massingale says, I am not a mind reader. I have no access to Amy Cooper's inner thoughts, but I do know, and we all know, that without these assumptions, her words and actions, her lies, make no sense. We also have to admit that her assumptions are not unreasonable. In fact, we have to admit that they are well-founded. They match what we know to be true about the country and how it works and how white people think. All of this for Mrs. Cooper was instantaneous. She even admitted that it was her own reflexes. No one taught Amy Cooper any of this. She never took a class explicitly on how whiteness works in America. She just knew what she was doing, and all of us knew what she was doing, and that's the problem. 
all of us understood exactly what she was leveraging in that moment. And that's the sickness. And that's what you and I have to, in this moment, be willing to, uh, to uproot. That's what you and I have to be willing to look back at so that we can go forward. How did we get to where we are today? And James Baldwin says, as sort of a warning to all of us, facing the truth will reveal, oftentimes, it will reveal more about America to Americans than Americans want to know. Facing the truth will reveal reveals more about America to Americans than Americans want to know. But discipleship, you and I cannot be faithful Christians, faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, and live in this neighborhood and not care deeply about this, as deeply about this as any other issue. We cannot. It's it's central to where God has placed us, what it means to be Trinity Eastside. And so the work before you and me is both to look back at our own story and see how that's shaping who we are today and to look at our own national story. And I just want to tell you a couple things I'm doing right now so you you can do your own version of this. And on Wednesday, we're going to put an email out and we're going to have a bunch of resources on it for you to kind of maybe chart your own path. But I'll just give you two things I'm doing. One, I'm reading this book, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. He's a Christian. He's a black man. And it is a book about how the church has been complicit in racism uh, since the origin of our country. And it's a, it's a story that you and I need to understand so we understand how we got here today. And the second thing I'm doing is I'm listening uh, to a podcast called Seeing White, which is put out by Seeing on Radio. Uh, our friend and brother, Daryl Ford, recommended it. He said, every person in my church, I think, has listened to this. It is wildly informative and necessary for us to understand where are we so that we can go backward, look backward so that we can go uh, forward. We need to remember this. I want to say this in closing. Joseph's words to his brothers are the word that I, I, I believe that God speaks over you and me and over our nation right now. Even what the enemy means for evil, God turns it to good. You and I are living, I think, at the turning point. Like we need to seize what's happening and take advantage of it and not lose this opportunity to grow, to become more, to not let this fade into the background. You and many of us who are of the majority culture have the privilege, if we want to, of ignoring this and waiting for it to fade into the background until something more pressing feels like it's in the foreground. And we cannot do that. We have to. We have to continue to look at this and to grow and learn until you and I become the sort of people who can begin to do something about it, to become healthy, to become part of a solution, to begin to right the wrongs, to reckon with what happened so that we can move forward in justice. And God takes what the enemy means for good, and he turns it. What the enemy meant for evil, and he turns it for good. And may God do so for you, and for me, and for our nation, and for our world. And may we come to partner with that redemptive, redeeming work that the Holy Spirit is doing, as we are willing as a church to look backward so that we can go forward. Would you pray with me? God, we ask for courage. We pray that we would be willing to look backward. As we do, Lord, I'm confident that what we'll see, among other things, is that there's just this steady hand of faithfulness, that you have been faithful the whole time. You've never left us. You've always been with us. You've always been for us. And even, Lord, as we have missed you and forsaken you and forgotten you and forgotten your law and chosen other kingdoms 
Lord, your great faithfulness has never waned. And so, Lord, we, um, we repent, we confess, and we move towards you. We pray, Lord, you would help us this week to be bold. Help us to be willing to do the hard work. God, heal our land, heal us, heal our church. Let this be a place of peacemaking. But we know, Lord, that there is no peace without justice. God, let us be a place of justice. In Jesus' name, amen.